This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's head to David Weston of Bloomberg TV speaking with Goldman Sachs Chairman and CEO Lloyd Blankfein. Lloyd, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. Great, David. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here, but you, thank you for being here at our conference. (laughs) Well, actually, I want to start there, Uh, since you suggested Lloyd, because I've been around all day long. And there is an atmosphere here that I don't often see, certainly in business gatherings. I mean, I go to some gatherings, maybe you do, where people are a little bit jaded and let's put them around. There's an enthusiasm and a passion here that I don't see every day. You know, I will tell you, I'll be honest, I don't see it every day. I don't see it any day. Uh, It's absolutely terrific. We brought back 2,300 small business graduates who came here on their own steam, and they paid their way to come here to um, listen to speakers, talk to each other, have breakout groups, learn business. But the most important thing, to network with each other and to make a declaration of... uh, how enthusiastic they are to be small businessmen and women in the United States. It's absolutely terrific. So why did you do this originally? I mean, you, didn't you make a commitment of like $500 million? Yeah, we did. We did. Um, I will tell you, there's a number of brain reasons and a heart reason hmm. for doing it. On the first, in the first place, you know, business, and, and it's an old saw at this point, it's a kind of a cliche, small business is the backbone of the USA, hires more than half the people in the United States. I could tell you, but I think everybody knows that the success of Goldman Sachs and all of its businesses correlates with GDP. And if you want to drive GDP in this country, you have to make things easier and better for small business people and have them grow. And then the economy grows and we grow with it. That's the kind of rationale you, you'll hear. But also, I'll tell you, on an emotional level, you know, anybody who's in any kind of industry at all wants to, of course, wants to make a good living for himself or herself. But you also have to have an ethic and a belief that what you do is important, uh, is valuable, accomplishes something. If you go into pharmaceuticals, maybe you want to make a living. But you also have to care about discovering drugs or being part of a process that helps cure people. In construction, you have to want to build things, you know, et cetera. If you're in finance like we are and you commit your life to it, you have to have a core belief in the value and the efficiency and the effectiveness of the capitalist system. People work, they're incented, they try to make a profit, not so much because they want to win everything, but because they want to make enough money so that it's self-sustaining as opposed to a philanthropy where you have to keep asking people for help. And it's a great system that allows people go out, they make a product people want, they hire people, those people get paid, they go out and buy more products, and more people can manufacture stuff to give it to them, and it's a wonderful cycle in the country. In some ways, we get to do that at Goldman Sachs on a very large scale. That's the good side. The bad side is the scale is so large, it's not a human scale. It's a wholesale scale. And you don't really get to see that operating on a human level. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to show the effectiveness of what we do by investing in small businessmen, real people. So we've invested in their education, programs that help them, things that give them confidence, explain to them how to make a business plan, how to... um, how to negotiate, how to ask for financing, et cetera, et cetera. We married them up with financing in some cases. In almost every case, we, had, we married them up with an advisor from Goldman Sachs who normally works on a great big scale but is actually telling somebody and helping 
somebody decide whether they should buy a new refrigerator for their catering business. Mm -hmm. So you said uh, it's the backbone of the economy, and that's generally accepted to be true, whether it's job growth or the, the dynamism in the economy. At the same time, the rate of origination of new businesses is going down in this country. There's a long-term decline in how many new businesses are being created. What's wrong? That says something about the economy that doesn't sound very encouraging. Well, I think um, that is a problem. And I think people have noticed that and people are trying to address it. Uh, you know, part of this is trying to help, you know, us teaching small business people. The small business people have responded in teaching us. And they've complained about several things and we're trying to gather together and feel how to address it. One of the things they've talked about is red tape, difficulties in starting a business. Red tape is another name for regulation, so in some respects it's a similar problem to the one that large businesses have. Uh, obtaining financing. Uh, and um, also getting qualified people to work in their business, you know, the educational system. These are all things. Red tape has been increasing. Financing has been hard to, uh, uh, to come by. These are all things that over the period of time you're talking about have gotten a little bit worse and worse in this country. Regulation has gotten a little bit worse and made it very, much harder to start a business. Uh, and I think that we feel it in our business, but it's interesting to hear that they feel it in their, their business. Now, these are people who have overcome that, but for every person who's overcome that, there's probably a wannabe who probably got caught up either in the red tape, the failure to get financing, or the possibility or the difficulty of finding qualified people. So as we sit here in Washington, uh, we really have to think about the extent to which Washington is affecting that environment for small business as well as big business. And a couple of things you just mentioned. On the one hand, on red tape regulation, the Trump administration has made a priority of reducing regulation. That should be, uh, over time, good for small business. On the other hand, the cost of capital, getting those loans at an affordable interest rate, we're really right now beginning to become a bit concerned about, given the level of deficit spending, the level of borrowing. Is that a real cause for concern, the possibility of an increase in interest rates that could affect small business as well as large? Well, I think, the, listen, the, the possibility, and I'd say probability, I'd say likelihood of higher interest rates at this point is going to be problematic. But if what's driving higher interest rates is a better economy, you know, there's good and there's bad in that, probably in the near term, the shock of higher interest rates will be an immediate negative and the long-term success of the economy will, will be just that, a long-term success. But you have to take uh, both of those things together. I'd say, you know, I've been critical of some aspects of things that have happened at the, at the national level, but I give credit. I'd say the movement to lower regulation uh, and I'd say that elements of the tax bill that have lowered taxes for people who are in this group of our small business group, you know, things like the pass-through, immediate depreciation of certain assets have been, uh, have been uh, very helpful. On the red tape, again, on the regulatory side, um, a lot of the burdens in the, among the people here, some of it occur at the national level, but a lot of, more of it occur, probably occur at the local level, and also the inconsistency mm -hmm. of red tape which is their word, regulation, my word, uh, that occurs across different rules, licensing requirements from jurisdiction from jurisdiction. So often not varying just by state, but by city, village, town, and it's very complex. I have thousands of people who help me deal with this. If you're a small business, you don't have thousands of people. It all comes out of the time you'd invest in your business. And in the survey that Goldman Sachs did in preparing for this conference, that was a big concern. And in fact, people said they spent as much as a third of their time on compliance, essentially, because they're the compliance officer. That's right. As well That's as right. the CEO, as well That's as the right. CMO, just like, CFO. Just like the time you spend, you want to have a simplified tax bill because you don't want to spend more hours on your tax bill than you do in your business. And, and not, not, not in earning the money to pay it 
but in filling out the form, you know, et cetera. And we kind of know that. And as time goes on, things get more complex. They get layered, layered, layered. And if we're lucky, somebody comes along and cuts a bit through that wax buildup. So as you say, there can be different reasons for higher interest rates. You say that you yeah. expect them to get higher. As you, because you really have access to a lot of information, as you look at it right now, at the moment, is it more because of an anticipation of growth, as you say, which would be a good thing for increasing interest rates, <laughs> as opposed to a concern of really supply and demand for, for bonds? The, the government, the well, Treasury is going to write more dollars. I think it's both of those and a kind of a related thought is an inflation which also can reflect supply and demand, but is a separate, you know, separate thing in and of itself. Look, if, if in any other period you saw growth in the United States in the high twos, close to 3%, global growth at 4%, and I said, quick, tell me, where are, where are interest rates? You wouldn't say short-term interest rates are one and a quarter percent, and you wouldn't say that long-term interest rates are two and three quarters percent. You'd say they were substantially higher. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why interest rates have been low for a long time, and a lot of it has to do with monetary policy, which I don't knock anybody for. I think they've kept us out of a crisis over a long period of time, but it's a delicate balance how to work that back to what I'll call normalcy. Maybe people don't know, maybe people think it's a new normal, but I don't think the new normal is radically different from the old normal. Um, and I think at this time, and, and also I would say policy has affected it, because while we're trying to get away from interest rates that are so low relative to the, to the to the growth in the economy. Uh, we're also trying to undo those memos, so bring rates high, but also don't forget QE. And on top of it, national policy just added to the deficit. Mm -hmm. And so you, see, you saw tax, the tax revenues are going to go down. Spending as a result of the new budget deal is going to go up, maybe even more if there's a, uh, if there's a bill for infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that has to be funded. So before any of that, you'd have said, "Gee, that deficit. There's going to be more. There's going to be more bonds that have to be issued." Well, now there'll be even more bonds that have to be issued. And guess what? As the Fed tries to undo its balance sheet, it's also going to sell Treasuries into the market, and that's another competitor. And so someone looking at this and saying, "Hmm, do I want to buy a 10-year Treasury, lend money to the United States government?" and get 2.8% interest, 2.85% interest. Is that it? I may want a little bit more before I give my money. And that's something that's going to happen. And so it's a very logical thing that rates would go up. So as you put that all together, was it worth it? Some of it is growth. Some of it is inflationary expectations. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, it's a combination of things. But we as a country have just bought something for $1.5 trillion in the tax cuts, $300 billion over the next two years yep. with the budget. We bought something, some asset. Was it a good trade? Was it a good purchase for us? In fact, because as you say, we're going to be issuing more Treasury bills, right? We're going to be adding more Treasury bonds into the marketplace at a time when the Fed is actually reducing their balance sheet. Uh, is this going to be on net, 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 going to be positive for the country? You know, I'd rather second guess them after I knew what happened. <laughs> uh, and I'd say I don't know that I would have had the um, – it wouldn't have been what I would do. I think it's a very bold thing to kind of throw a little bit more – you know, lighter fluid mm. on a fire that was already going. On, and I'll tell you, I'll take the other side from the administration point of view. They don't believe that the limit of, of greedy GDP growth has been reached, mm -hmm. and they think it'll grow higher. If it does grow higher, people will earn more money. If they earn more money, they'll pay more taxes. That's the whole supply side thing. Could it possibly work? I think it's a risky thing. I probably wouldn't have done it. 
But a lot of people who had taken that position said the United States uh, economy is limited to 2%. That was their new normal. Mm -hmm. And here we are several quarters in a row uh, growing close to 3%. So I'd say the jury's out. If you ask me, I'm not trying to back away from it. If you said, would I have done it? Probably not. Do I think crazy? Mm -hmm. No. Wrong? We'll see. But I don't think it's as dangerous. I don't think we're, we're dealing with. Uh, I don't think we're dealing with existential risk. You can always change this. You can always cut spending. I mean, it's hard to do from a political point of view. But if a consensus formed that we're getting to a bad place, then you can make adjustments. And also, there's monetary policy that's going. To, interest rates are going to rise. That will slow things down. So you've often said that you, you want to be a contingency planner rather than a forecaster. Well, I find myself. I'd rather be good at forecasting, but I think. Yeah. So, so as a being wrong from time to time in my <laughs> forecast, I decided I'd plan for contingencies. Well, we've seen a remarkable development in the markets in the last two months, two weeks. Uh, volatility really has spiked up in a way that not too many people anticipated. Uh, is it safe to assume Goldman had planned for that contingency? Were you in good shape going into it? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask. Usually I get asked, did Goldman Sachs cause it? Uh, <laughs> no, no. Did, did we it? plan for it? Of course we planned for it. I, I, listen, I spend 98% of my time planning for the 2% mm -hmm. likely things that could go wrong. I mean, that's my job. I'm in the risk management business. But if you ask me what did... Of Statistically, of course, I, I, in a, historically, of course, things don't stay the same. The price of oil is going to stay $60, $60 forever? I don't think so. We're going to have growth in the United States and have interest rates be you know, under 2%? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, the equity market is going to keep going up forever on a measured way and never retreat more than, you know, more than 4 or 5% in a year? I don't think so. We're not that lucky. I'm not that lucky, and you're alive at the same time as me, so there's no way it's going to be that way in our lifetime, because I couldn't be that lucky. And so things are going to happen. There'll be something that happens in the world. Someone will get elected that shouldn't happen. There'll be a natural disaster. A company will go under. There'll be a cyber event. There'll be war, pestilence. Something will happen that will cause all the relationships of one asset to another to have to readjust against each other. It has been an unusual period where that hasn't happened. Now, people aren't sure what the reason why is. My own best guess is when they write dissertations right. down the road and they look back, they'll say at a point of time because of QE and central banks around the world buying risky assets as much as they could get, almost as fast as debt was issued, they bought them. That tends to be a little blanket mm -hmm. over spikes mm -hmm. in asset prices, and that probably kept things low. As the market and people anticipate that coming off, I think we're going to see more volatility. So if Goldman was planning for this, you were planning for this, it's your job. Not planning mean, for it, well, planning for okay. a contingency. Yes. That you were planning for okay. the possibility of. Is it fair to infer, then, that Goldman is doing pretty well right now, particularly in its trading, in its FIC trading, and commodities, and fixed income, given what's happened with volatility? Because we heard for quite a few quarters from Goldman and others, the problem with trading really was a lack of volatility. This is a much better environment, even if this is a much better environment. Look, we sell insurance to people. We take risk away from each other. If there hasn't been a hurricane on the East Coast for years... People stop buying insurance, and those that buy insurance don't want to pay a lot. Mm -hmm. If you have four hurricanes, like the year of Katrina, the next year everybody buys insurance, and they pay whatever you ask them to pay. 
not that the risks have changed that much because anything can happen anytime, but their sentiment has changed and their anxiety has changed. And so it's a much better environment for our client, uh, for our client franchise. And the answer is it is a better environment. At any given day, we could be positioned wrong. You know, we have to position inventory based on our best guess as to what our clients will want the next day or the next week or the next month because we deal in illiquidity. Um, so it may not work right every day, but the environment is good for us. It gives us a lot of chances. It makes us valuable to our clients. So for those of us who really are not traders, don't understand trading, give me a sense. As you look at that better environment, as you call it, does it distribute evenly across commodities, across fixed income, across FX, or do some things get benefited more from this volatile things environment? Things go just proportionally. But when prices of anything change, it's like the butterfly effect. Yeah. When anything changes, the relationship of everything else has to change with it. Yeah. Just think what happened when housing prices went up. Everybody thought, gee, that must be limited to real estate. Mm -hmm. But people borrowed against their real estate. Mm -hmm. So people who borrowed against real estate suffered a wealth reversal. They had to sell assets that weren't, you know, knock-on effect, knock-on effect, knock-on effect. If interest rates go up, the value of things very often is the cash flow. Well, that gets discounted by an interest rate. If interest rates go up, the value of assets go down. Not just bonds, but real estate prices, other prices. You think that solid and stable real estate prices was the predicate for so much value in the world. Could you right. imagine what interest rates are? <laughs> I think a lot of prices will undoubtedly have to reset against each other. Why you're so good at your job. That's Lloyd Blankfein. He is CEO of Goldman Sachs. to talk about here at the Goldman Sachs Small Business Alumni Summit in Washington, D.C. Margaret Anadu is head of the Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs. She moderated a panel earlier today at the summit. It was called Advocate Leading With Your Voice. She joins us on set here in the nation's capital. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Tell me about this panel and what it was about. So we had a panel with Mayor Pugh and Rob O'Connor from Goldman, who works in the Office of Government Affairs. So one of the things we're really excited about tomorrow is that over 2,000 small businesses are going to hit Capitol Hill and talk to their representatives directly about the issues that are facing small businesses. I love that. Do they often feel that they do not have... Um, a voice when it comes to their lawmakers and in Washington? I think so. Well, I mean, one of the themes that we've heard a lot throughout the day is that regulation is a real um, encumbrance for these businesses. So if you think about the large corporations, whenever there's a change in regulation, a change in taxes, you have a compliance director, you have a general counsel, you have all of these people who are there to help you. But when you own a small business, you're the CEO, you're the CFO, you're your own general counsel. And so one of the things that I think is a big topic is going to be regulation. And not, you know, no one is saying that regulation is unnecessary, mm -hmm. but even how it gets rolled out how things are explained, how you implement these changes, I think is, is on the minds of all these small business owners, and, and they have something to say about it. I wouldn't I mean, want to be those lawmakers, Corey. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, always, I always say, you know, one man's regulation is another one's uh, uh, protection. And it would seem to me that, that quite often for businesses, the competition between big business, the interests of big business and the interests of small business uh, tend to always favor the big business, particularly and maybe more than anywhere else, when it comes to you know getting those meetings with with uh, legislators, uh, finding out you know who is in charge at a certain government agency, and and getting out through those doors is just really tough to do without campaign donations. 
Uh, exactly. Am and, I and being cynical? You can tell me I'm being cynical. No, you no, wouldn't no. be the first. I, I, don't, I don't think you're being cynical. I, I think you're right. And if you think about the impact at the end of the day, right, and we think about, it, you know, these big companies, employers, jobs, we all think about, you know, the Fortune 100, the, the Fortune 50, but when you trace it down to actual employees in our economy, over half of us are employed by small businesses. And so the fact that there's sort of that imbalance in terms of who's heard and, and voices, I think, is, 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 is incredibly unfortunate. How has that group gotten lost, though, in the kind of political psyche? Is it just about money and the ability to kind of donate to campaigns? What is it? Because I, I hear it, and we talk it constantly at Bloomberg, you know, about the importance of small business, you know, the backbone of our economy. We all know that, and yet. I think it's dispersion, mm. right? So, you know, power and voices are better heard when they're aggregated. And so when you think about the fact that it's your dry cleaner, your empanada maker, the person who runs the salon down the street, the person who caters events at your school. It's all of these things that, you know, even here today, there are over 2,000 people. Um, and they represent, you know, obviously thousands of businesses across the country, the thousands that have been through the program. When you add it all together, you know, we looked at the stat. They, you know, have $9 billion in revenue. But the fact that that's spread across 7,000 different people in different places with different representatives, I think uh, mm-hmm. the issue is just just that dispersion. And so that's what we're doing. We're bringing them all here together today. It's been incredible convening. Is there one issue in particular that they're hoping to kind of put forth or one or two issues? I'd say there are a few. um, And we've done a lot of research on this, both with uh, the actual businesses that have been through our program and then surveys more broadly. Um, One, they struggle with access to capital. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That's been sort of a resounding issue we've heard from the business. Is that especially exacerbated coming off the financial crisis or that's kind of been (laughs) forever? And the the SBA has actually released data on this. So it's, you know, it's a fact. It's not even opinion anymore. Post-crisis, a lot of the additional regulation that banks um, had to implement did did result in a retrenchment in their small business yeah. lending, I, th- I think to the, to the, to the tune of um, you know, dozens of billions. And so you know, one of the things that we think will be really important as you know, lawmakers in, in Washington think about regulation thoughtfully and smart, smartly is, well, I mean, is the- yes, we want a you know, financial system that's protected, but we also want a financial system that works. Right. But some of that's got to be just about capital requirements and banks not lending as much overall, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the I think, it, and, it, and it goes to the earlier question about who's impacted and who has a voice, I think the impact of that on small businesses has been particularly hard felt in, in these communities. Margaret, we've got about 45, 50 seconds left here. Um, it's a big day tomorrow when they march up on Capitol Hill and mm-hmm. go to their uh, lawmakers and speak to them. But they can't do that every day. They can't do that every week. So mm-hmm. what's got to be happening in the future to ensure that their voice is heard? Well, I think there's, a, you know, I think there's obviously the moment on the Hill with the federal government. But I think we believe these small businesses have very good ideas that are important at the state level and the local level. So one of the things that we talked about in the panel earlier with Mayor Pugh is that the conversation doesn't stop tomorrow. Mm-hmm. A lot of these cities have, you know, economic development arms. They have small business corporations. They have state assemblies. I think that there's a lot that the public sector and private sector can do to help these businesses grow and flourish. And I don't think that conversation stops tomorrow. Yeah, she and she would know, right? She understands about these partnerships and these things that you need to get oh, going. Oh, and she's in a Baltimore. fierce advocate for small business. <laughs> yeah, she joined us on uh, Bloomberg Radio earlier. Um, good luck with everything. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you so much. Nice to get some time. Uh, Margaret Anadu, she is head of Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs, on site at the Goldman 10,000 Small Business Summit, right here in the nation's capital. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Still say, 
Dave Wilson, with the very latest hit, well, not so much, but Dave, talk to me about your song choice and your chart of the day. Sure, things are pretty much the same when you look across markets, even after the swings that we've seen in stocks. That was a conclusion that Russ Kostrich draw the other day. He's the head of asset allocation for BlackRock's global allocation team. And what he did is he looked at what has been going on in the S&P 500 and compared that with what's been happening in the high-yield bond market. You know, debt and equity tend to move together, at least the the high-yield portion of the market. So you'd figure that if there was real concern about where markets were going and not just stocks, that you would see a spillover effect. And the short answer is you didn't see all that much. Uh, You can look at, uh, as an example, the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Corporate High Yield Index, and you can see, sure, uh, yields widened uh, by close to half a percentage point last week for that index. That said, uh, you figure it was about 3.7 points at week's end. So that's how much more you would get on, on the uh, high-yield bonds in the index than you would on comparable treasuries. And if you look back over the past year or so, you saw spreads that were wider than that in March, April, August, and November. So even though the move you were seeing in stocks was pretty unusual, what happened in high-yield bonds not so much. So you really didn't have sort of a contagion, you might say, or a systemic sort of move in markets. That was the key, at least for Costridge. And if you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Thank you so much, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson, with his chart of the day. So white swans, black swans, what about gray swans? State Street Global Advisors still looking for steady global growth and tame inflation for 2018, but says there could be some possible gray swans. Here to explain, Lori Heinel, she is Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global, and she joins us uh, on the phone from Boston. Uh, Lori, talk to us a little bit about these gray swans. I haven't heard about that. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, one of the things that we try to do is pressure test our base case scenario. So uh, we think that 2018 is going to be a good year for investors. We think that corporate earnings will improve, global growth will persist, and that the bond market, while it's likely to get hit a little more from here, we're not going to have sort of bond carnage. Uh, But we try to pressure test that by saying, well, are there big disruptive things that could happen that would actually lead to a very, very different outcome? And because these are things that we can actually think about, we don't call them black swans because technically black swans are things that you can't even know, they're unknowable, unthinkable, Uh, we decide to settle in on this gray swans. So there are a few things that we think are gray swans, and we've written about those in our uh, recent publication. And they are? Sure. So, um, so one of the obvious ones is cyber attacks. I mean, there is, we saw um, you know a number of things happen over the last couple of years where we've had attacks on uh, credit firm Equifax, for example. Uh, there are concerns that you'll have uh, fake news or other kinds of things that disrupt the market because um, you know you've got a lot of um, traders that are looking at every you know parsing every bit of information and trying to find an edge. And so, when you have these kinds of exogenous attacks, it could impact. A, 
an individual security, as you could have uh, some sort of a headline that comes across that leads people to sell, or it could impact whole markets. So, uh, for example, there was some uh, fake news that was out there about an attack on the White House recently, and that led to a, an immediate downdraft and a recovery. So those are things that we worry about. The other thing that we look at are things like protectionism. Uh, you know, obviously, um, one of the things that President Trump has talked a lot about are campaign promises to fix some of the bad trade deals that he saw. And obviously, um, his first year in office uh, was fairly benign in that regard. He did withdraw from uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example. But other than that, it's been largely rhetoric. But if we start to see uh, more seriousness on withdrawing from something like NAFTA or um, getting rid of some of the other major trade agreements that we have, that could be quite punishing for the U.S. because it could spawn uh, longer-term inflation and uh, create other uh, pressures on U.S. companies who uh, garner a lot of their revenues from places abroad. Well, I'm also, you know, we don't have to go too far to find things that have never happened before. I mean, last Monday when the VIX uh, spiked uh, to unforeseen levels or to a degree to which it never had before, uh, the one-month-out contract on the VIX, the two-month-out contract on the VIX, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. up more than 80% for the first time ever, quite literally mm-hmm. black swan. And it, I got together with uh, four people who were, who were long this uh, XIV product uh, who would lost a, a lot of money that mm-hmm. day. And, and, and they, one of them said it was a black swan. It was a, an mm-hmm. event that has just never, ever happened before. Mm-hmm. And it didn't cause the entire world to collapse, the entire financial markets to, to collapse. Uh, in, in, in that period. And I, and I wonder what to make of the black swan events that happen in the world of finance and still don't cause such a dramatic right. uh, effect for the rest of the market. Well, you know, it's interesting. We actually did some analysis where we looked at um, other exogenous shocks to the market. So um, we looked at things like the 9-11 attacks, um, the invasion of Kuwait, uh, the Iranian hostage crisis, these other kind of geopolitical things that happen. And what you find in a lot of these cases is this sharp sell-off in the markets initially, uh, but then for the most part they recover within a very, very short period of time if the underlying fundamentals are still strong. Now, the one shock that we had historically that uh, led to a fairly persistent uh, bear market was the oil embargo back in the 70s. So one of the things that I think we have to always think about is what's that shock? And is that shock something that is a sort of passing issue that's maybe contained to an area in the, in the case of volatility, a lot of discussion about, you know, a little bit of, you know, signs of potential wage inflate, uh, wage pressures, a little bit of inflation concerns, you know, led to a little bit of de-risking, and then all of a sudden you get the spike. But the underlying fundamentals are still very, very strong. We're still seeing global growth accelerate. We're still seeing, um, you know, uh, labor markets, in spite of the fact that we're at full employment, we're not seeing a lot of systemic uh, Wage pressures. So these kinds of shocks, they may be uh, good headline makers, and they may even lead to certain market participants losing a lot of money, but they're not ultimately systemic. What about political gray swans? Yeah, <laughs> lots of those right now, sure. Mm. And, and the problem with political gray swans is they come in all manner of flavors. As, as I mentioned, you could say at one extreme it could be, um, you know, our own uh, White House president, uh, you know, talking about 
trade policies and the potential repercussions if, in fact, we did uh, withdraw from major trade agreements. The other could be uh, ongoing geopolitical and populist risk. So one of the things we write about in our Grace Wands piece is this concern that in the uh, European Union in particular, uh, you get a resurgence of populism. So we had a number of elections last year in Europe, which ultimately turned out to be fairly benign, but you do have uh, ongoing stress right. in Germany, for example. Lori Heinel, thank you so much. Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors. As you know, a very small, popular small business to own is restaurants, and we have a couple of restaurant owners uh, with us here at the Goldman Sachs Small Business Alumni Summit underway in Washington, D.C. Mary Aragoni is a co-founder and owner of Saigon Sisters Restaurant based in Chicago, and she joins us here on set. Nice to have Hello. you here with Corey and myself. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Great. Thank you. This is awesome. I just heard Michael Bloomberg, so this is amazing. I, well, let's play off of that a little bit because he talked, from what I understand, I wasn't at the speech, I was on air, but what he talked about is the importance of immigrants yes. running small businesses. And as we know, small business is so important to our economy. What did you take away from that? Oh my gosh, he touched my heart when he said this country was built by immigrants because I came as an immigrant in the 70s after the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, we left everything behind. We were entrepreneurs and business people back in the country and started from scratch and saw my mom left everything behind. And um, I promised her that at that time that we're going to become an entrepreneur again, this new country. And um, that's what I did. I left corporate 20 years um, and then became my, you know, my dream of being an entrepreneur about nine years ago. And it's true. We are immigrants and we put our heart and soul into this country. What is it about coming to the United States that really enables you to take a dream and run with it? It's really freedom. You know, you can tell once you land on this country that this vast opportunity, the land is open and people are friendly, you feel safe, and you know that you can take us as far as you wanted to go. There's nobody stopping you. And that's kind of like what I came from where it was very suppressed mm -hmm. um, until like this, like you can make your whatever you want to do. Hey, your story is so interesting. It reminds me so much of my friend Charles Fenn, who's got a restaurant here in San Francisco, the yes. uh, the Slanted Door and, and Hard Water and a couple Out the Door and a couple of restaurants, also Vietnamese food, also uh, fantastic food. Um, but it, but there's also something about that story about, you know, once you've been through so much as an immigrant, in Charles' case, he was uh, you know on a boat cast to sea uh, as, as a child and then built a business here. You've been through so many struggles already. A failed restaurant would be nothing, and it turns out it wasn't a failure at all. What What is it? though that, that you feel like you need help with in this environment to grow a small, your small business? Um, definitely the human capital. You know, we are a service industry. We need cooks, servers, people who uh, keep the business going. And um, a lot of them are immigrants as well as, you know, um, people are here and, and a lot of people, and because of the tight labor market, it's very hard to keep good people. So we constantly have to hire people, train them, and it's costly to do that. And, um, and I think that having access to training development or tax credit to help build up our employees um, and 
making them, them legal because <laughs> some of them are, you know, want to be here and they want to uh, stay and work and make a life here. Mary, this is really important because we, Corey and I recently had a guest on who said, you know, be careful because you know what's going to slow down economic growth is not having access to workers, you know, for American companies. And, of course, with the pushback against immigration, I mean, that is a big part of our workforce. Um, You're going to go up on Capitol Hill tomorrow? Yes, I am. Tell me what you want to say to lawmakers. I want to tell them that we need a policy that will help people who are willing to make this country amazing and great because they're willing to do the job that people can't and don't want to do okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's There's a the pecking order yeah, often it's in the a labor hospitality market. industry and there are so many ways to help them you know um for me i went through the you know seven years and became a naturalized citizen and got the paperwork and i followed the rules and whatever it takes i am pretty sure that we have a clear understanding clear path and people to help them get through the process that you're going to get like a lot of people not be afraid, you know, to to uh, to do this. So, and right now there's no path, there's no solution, and that is really scary for me. And I'm just really scared because my employees come up to me every day and say, you know, my visa is going to expire in a few you know, months, mm-hmm. what do I do? And I'm like, I wish I could help you. I'm going to try to find some answers. I call lawyers. I call people. Nobody has an answer for me. So there's no clear definition or path or solution right now. Do you, Corey, I don't know if you've got a last oh, question. Go well, do you feel like you've had a voice or anybody listening to you very quickly? You only got about 15 seconds. No, no. I don't. <laughs> Short and sweet. Yeah, no, I don't. Well, I hope you get your voice um, tomorrow. I know there's about 2,000 small businesses that are heading to Capitol Hill, and uh, you need to be heard. Yes, definitely. Good luck with that. Thank and good you luck so with much. your business yeah, in the great future. Stuff. Yeah. Thank you very much. Mary Argoni, the uh, co founder and owner of Saigon Sisters Restaurant based in Chicago. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.